your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. We're soon to come to an end of this overview and study of the book of Exodus. The Lord willing, we'll have one more week and, and we'll, we will finish up those chapters next week. Tonight our focus is on chapter 33 and 34. Simply as a quick view of um, the 32nd chapter, when you think about that event, you know, there are a number of lessons that we can draw from the 32nd chapter of Exodus. When you think about all the events that were surrounding the ungodly making of this golden calf at Mount Sinai, and think, oh, okay, what, what can we learn from that? Well, there's a lot, in, in, even in the mistakes of others. For example, it, you know, we learn from them about the fickleness of man's heart, as well as the consequences of disobedience and the consequence of unfaithfulness. So that's two lessons there. But you can think even further the, and think about the gravity of breaking a divine covenant. You know, that's a very sobering lesson for us to contemplate. But then you look at perhaps on the other side of the equation, you begin to see God and you see the justice of God as well as the compassion of God in dealing with his disobedient children. We also can see in the 32nd chapter the need for a mediator, one who is able and willing to intercede on others' behalfs because there's a need for forgiveness. And there is also that lesson of individual accountability that runs through and through all the verses of that chapter. So there's a number of things that you could talk about and delve into when you go back and just look at those events and the story of the golden calf and their transgression. But that's not where we are tonight. We are tonight in the renewing of the covenant, the restoring of the relationship, and so we're going to kind of break up different sections of the chapter, not necessarily go down in, in order of the verses. And so I want to begin, for example, there in verse 7 through 11 and talk a little bit about the idea of God communicating with Moses at the tent of meeting. You think about the idea how God chose, God blessed, God established this relationship, and so thus God spoke. If you're going to have a relationship, you know, or a relationship that would be described as a fellowship, a covenant fellowship, where there's got to be communication, and God does. God communicated you know, to Israel, his children, and he did so through Moses at this tent of meeting, which was placed outside the camp of Israel. Now, this particular tent that we're introduced to here in the 33rd chapter is not the tabernacle of worship. You know, that has not been constructed and completed yet. You know, that, you know, that is, you know, uh, some instructions are given already about it, but that's not done. So this is a different tent of meeting. And you think about, you know, when God spoke to Moses, Moses did not go up on the mountain every single time. Now, there's two big occasions that he did. You know, and you, uh, the previous one, when he first receives the stone tablets, and then on the lesson night, the second time when God writes on those stone, tam stone tablets again. And so here's this idea of God communicates with his children 
through his chosen servant Moses. Because Moses was God's mouthpiece. And in that sense, he was the mediator. And he was a mediator between God and the people. But that's not all. You know, one of the uniqueness about Moses, particularly I think the heart of Moses, is all these different occasions where you see Moses mediating from the people to God. And that's, imp and that's impressive. The role that you know, Moses takes, you know, when you think early on he was hesitant about you know, taking on this role, but God knew Moses, knew the man, and knew the man that he could become. And so he has matured and developed in his relationship with God and his people immensely to, up to this point. But one of the things that's really unique in this section is verse 11, and I'm sure that one kind of jumps out at you. When you think, you know, it says, you know, that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. And so he goes on to say, just as a man speaks to his friend. And so you think about this idea of God spoke, you know, to Moses as a friend. And I would suggest to you, it's not just he's speaking to him, but he's speaking with him. Those two, you know, representations suggest two concepts, and I think they're both involved in the relationship that God had with Moses and the relationship that Moses had with God. And you think about the idea of God having a relationship with one that was chosen and speaking to him as one would speak to his friend. You know, that's impressive. You know, God spoke to Moses that way. He spoke to Moses as you would be speaking to your closest friend. That's powerful. And she begin to see the significance of Moses. You know, and the role that he's fulfilling here. But you know, that relationship took some time. It took both parties to you know, make that work. But to have that kind of relationship, there has to be a closeness. There's got to be a trust. There's got to be a sense of shared interest. And not just on God's part, but also on Moses' part. And, and that's what it, that occurs here. And so God would speak to Israel through Moses. God would commun communicate to him or with him. And then that would be uh, shared with the nation. And so who is God's voice to us today? It is Jesus. It is the very Son of God is the voice to us. It is He who is our mediator. You go back to Paul's epistle to Timothy. You know, there, you know, the man Jesus is the mediator between, you know, between man and God. And why? Why is Jesus, the Son of God... The perfect mediator for you and me. Why is that the case? He's without blame. Okay, he's without blame. And so standpoint of standing in, in, on our behalf before the one who is holy. What else? What, what else makes Jesus the perfect mediator, the perfect, perfect voice from God to us and us to God? What makes him the perfect one? He lived on the earth as a man. All right, and so he is Emmanuel. And so you think about one who has walked among those he intercedes on behalf of. Moses interceded on his people, on his kinsmen. And Jesus does so with us as well. He, he has been among us. 
He was one like us, taking on you know, the role of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of the very creature that he created. He's our high priest, you know, able to fulfill that role eternally before he lives forevermore. And so there's a number of, of answers you could you know, you know, could look at and consider. When you think of the idea how God has communicated. He communicated to Israel through Moses, but God has still communicated to mankind today. And he does so through his son, who is likewise the perfect voice, the perfect mediator, the perfect Savior, Lord, priest, everything that we need. He is Emmanuel who came and revealed grace and truth. For he was the very embodiment of it. Yeah. In him is grace. In him is truth. And so as you think about you know, that being introduced, then you go back to, uh, in the first few verses when God you know, gives you know, some instructions about their journey. And so God affirms again that uh, he's going to direct the nation to the land, the very land that he promised. Remember, there are some things God said previously you know, that you know, made them perhaps wonder you know, what is God going to do or not do? And God reaffirms, no, I'm going to lead you to the land that I promised your fathers, and I will drive out your enemies. What about those words? I was going to say, what about what he says there in verses 1 through 3? What does that reveal to you about the character of God? When God reaffirms this, what does that say about the character of God? He's faithful. Right. And so it reveals the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to His promises. God is faithful to His Word. He is trustworthy. And so later on, when God reveals Himself to you know, Moses... And proclaims his name to him. You know, you know, already he's doing that, really. And he's going to expound on that in greater detail in, in, in how he describes himself. But the character of God has already been visible to those who had the eyes to see it. The character of God has already been heard to those who had the ears to hear it. God has been showing himself over and over and over to this nation. You know, what kind of God, what kind of redeemer, what kind of deliverer he truly is to those that he has chosen. But there is an interesting point that is brought, uh, brought out you know, then there in verse 3. When he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you to the land. I'm going to drive out. Basically, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to keep my promises. But, he's, but he begins to, he states that he would not go up in their midst, lest he destroy them for their obstinacy. You know, so he, already God has shown his anger, a righteous anger for their stiff-neckedness, their stubbornness, their disobedience and their rebellion. And, and at this point, he says, if I, you know, go with you and I am... In your presence, I am in your midst, like I have been. He says, it, 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 it's likely, he's saying, it is likely that I will destroy you. 
you know, because of your stubbornness. Yeah, and so you think about that idea. So God suggests here that he's, he, he's going to lead them, but he's going to change, you know, the relationship in some capacity. And you think about that concept. God has, in a sense, been in their midst, not physically, but he's been there among. His presence has been visible. His presence has been heard. And God says, okay, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to fulfill my promises, but I am going to change some things about how I manifested myself to you. And he says, it's because of your disobedience, your rebellion, your stubbornness. And you think about the nature of God, the character of God. What about God does not allow him to continue endlessly having fellowship with, that, with stubbornness and rebellion? Someone said over here? His holiness. Right. So what else? What about God? We've got this holiness of God. We want to allow him to just endlessly continue to his presence be there. God who is holy cannot stay in the presence indefinitely with unholiness. Somebody else just. Okay, just. You start, you start naming all the characteristics that you know, we are revealed in God's word. Holiness, justice, he's light, he's righteous. And so God cannot sustain a fellowship with a people whose allegiance and whose commitment are not totally committed and directed toward him. 1 John 1 5 says, God is light, and what else? Finish it. In him is no darkness. In him is no darkness. Implying what, Mitch? He can't be with darkness. He cannot be with darkness. And that's exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians, reminding them about their allegiance in Christ over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. We talk about don't be eat unequally yoked because lawlessness has no fellowship with what? Righteousness. Righteousness. And light has no fellowship with darkness. There is, there cannot be a connection. There cannot be a relationship. There cannot be fellowship in an ongoing disjoint and disconnected relationship. So God says to him, okay, I will keep my promise, but things are going to have to change because of the people. Well, we're told that this upset the people, and one of the things God had said, okay, you need to get rid of all your ornaments that you've been wearing, you know, because you know, this, this is what I'm thinking right now. And they do. And it strikes me that, you know, it, it is at this point, it seems it hits home. You know, there in verse 4, when the people heard this you know, uh, word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments because they were told to take it off in verse 5. And so they, you know, they take off those ornaments from Mount Horeb, implying they took it off and those things they never put back on. So the relationship has to change. And so they start making a change. Godly sorrow will manifest itself how? how will, in a, just in a general way. How will godly sorrow manifest itself? Repentance. Repentance. 
And so repentance meaning change. And so, and that's going to be evident how? Your approach of life, what you do, what you don't do. So your actions, you know. And so here you finally see, you see perhaps a little inkling of some godly sorrow here in the people. Now, you know in your understanding and knowledge of God's word and of the Israelites that it doesn't last very long. But they do show some change in a positive direction here. And as a result, God does go up with them. His presence stays with them. And that is partly because Moses, being the man of God that he was, being the mediator that he was for his fellow kinsmen, intercedes again here in verse 12 and following and as a result, you know, God says in verse 17, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. I have known you by my name. And so he promises, I, I will go with you. And you know, once again, very quickly, you think about the intercession of, of, of Moses here. You're going to break it down. Yeah, and one thing, as Moses kind of presents this defense for his people, for his family, for those people that he cared for so deeply. Uh, one thing he brings out, he says he reminds God, he says, well, first of all, God, you know, Israel is your people. You know, the, you know, these are your people, God. You brought them into existence. You know, uh, and, and so, because he, he's been told, you bring up your people, and Moses turns out, well, no, you know, you're the one. Who's accomplices? And so that's one of his first defenses. God, these are your people. You know, you know, they are, you know, you know, they have reached this point because of what you have done, not because of what I've done. It's you that have accomplished this. And then secondly, he, he you know, makes the point about this whole idea of God's presence or God's favored fellowship. You know, and he's and he basically says, it's that. That makes us different. And so you look there in, in verse 16. How then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by you going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the people who are upon the face of the earth? And so it makes the point, not only are they your people, God, you the, you're the one that brought them in, into existence. You're the one that brought them to this point, not me. He says, and besides, it's your presence. It's you being with us that makes us so special. Israel was a special people of God, not because of Israel. Israel was a special people of God because of God. And that's true for us today, spiritually, Israel. Spiritual Israel is, is, is special and significant and amazing, not because we are so amazing, but because of God. God is awesome, and Christ is awesome, and it's the Father and the Son and the Spirit who make us unique and make us special and make us the elect and the chosen. It makes me think of Romans 8, verse 31, you know, when Paul is making the argument, you know, if you are with us, you remember what he says? He asked the question, if you're with us, 
Who can be against us? It is God that sets us apart. And so Moses, in his intersection, brings that to the forefront. He says, God, they're your people. I'm not the one who's done anything. You've done it all. And you're the one that makes us unique. And so we need your presence. If you don't go with us, you know, we're nobody. And then he goes on to say, along with that idea, and without your presence, Moses basically says, well, if you're not going to be with us, we'll just stay right here. And to me, it almost has the sound of when Moses saying, you know, we're not going to go any further. We're not going to leave this place if you're not with us. And to me, it applies, you know, what's the use? What's the purpose? If you're not there with us. Or maybe you know, a, a more deeper thought could go with it. The idea of Jeremiah 10, 23. Man does not know how to direct his own steps. And so, in a sense, you know, I guess geographically, Moses you know, you know, could get them from the wilderness you know, you know, to Canaan. But in a, in a greater sense, you know, Moses did not know how to lead the people without God. And the people did not know how to lead themselves without God. And so, finally, Moses in his session talks about, okay, if I have obtained favor before you, and he says, this is what you've said to me. You've indicated that I have found favor in you. You know me. You know my name. We have this you know, unique relationship. And he says, if that be the case, he, got, he says, okay, let me know you better. You know, let me know your ways more deeply. And when you think about all of those requests, this petition on behalf of Israel, this comes from a man, I would suggest to you, a man of faith, a man of God, who has spent time with who? It's an obvious answer. God. This grows out of a man of faith, a man of God, who has spent time with with God. A man who has developed a relationship that God looks upon him and says, I speak with you as a friend would speak with you. And you think that takes work, that takes trust, that takes focusing on the things that are of God. But along with this whole idea of wanting to know God more and better in chapter 33, you know, in a very personal way, you know, Moses says, hey, I want to see your glory. And so you see that in verse 18 to the end of the chapter uh, where he, he requests to see God's glory. And God says you know, here in, in these verses that he says, you will see my goodness and in uh, my name. There in verse 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And so he says, I, I would like to see you, God. He has been in the presence of God in, 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 in these various manifestations of God's power and glory, but he said, I would like to see your true glory. And, of course, you know, God says, well, you can't see my face. You cannot see my face and live. And God needs Moses to live. 
God needs Moses to serve him and lead this, his people to the promised land. And so God makes an allowance. He's out placing a, a specific, specific cleft of the rock. And I'll cut, put my hand over you know, your face and I'll pass before you and I'll take away my hand and you'll, you'll see me from behind. You'll see my back. And so that's what occurs in chapter 34. So God makes that promise and, and that happens in the 34th chapter when, when Moses goes up on the mountain again. Yeah, to be up there another 40 days and 40 nights. But this time we're told when he's up there, what else is he doing besides just being with God? He's doing something personally. Writing out the commandments. He's not writing it. God's writing it. You know, we'll talk about that. I would see it. You're looking in, in chapter, at the end of chapter 34, it sounds like, uh, you know, uh, Moses doesn't, but you look in verse 1, God says, I will write on the tablets. And you look in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, you see it again. So, yes, I grew up all saying, you know, that, well, you know, Moses had to write up the tablet. Moses had to do something. What did Moses have to do before he came up the mountain? Cut out the rock. He had to cut out these tablets. You know, why? He had to carry them up. But why did he have to cut, cut the rock and carry it back up? He broke it. And so you think about there's a sense of responsibility here. You know, God says, you shattered them. So you cut them this time. And Moses does. He cuts the, the tablets and he carries them back up the mountain. Carry them up the mountain, I would, I would hit, is a lot harder than carrying them down the mountain. You know, either way, I'm sure they're heavy. But, but going up is harder than going down. And so that's just a kind of a side point. But he goes up and, and God is going to rewrite his laws on these tablets as he had done before. And so it's while he's up there, and you pick up you know, in verse 5, the Lord, you know, Moses has gone up, but the Lord comes back down in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name. And then verse 6, he says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord now that's the word Jehovah, Yahweh, I am. The I am. The I am God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for a thousand, who forgives iniquity, transgressions and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. He says, Moses made haste, bowed low, worship. And he says, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst. Even though the people are obstinate, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. And so basically he petitions God on the nation again and repeats what he's been saying. That we have sinned, we need your forgiveness, we need your presence. You know, we are your people. Take us and be with us. And so you think about the idea here, particularly when God says at the end of chapter 33, he says, I will show all my goodness and I will proclaim my name. And you get down to verse you know, 6 and 7, and that's exactly what God is doing. God is revealing his goodness and his name here. That's what he's proclaiming. 
Is this something entirely new? No. Because God has been doing this throughout the history of mankind. God, in his various means of manifesting or revealing himself to the fathers and then you know, through Moses and to the nation of Israel, throughout their history, God has been showing his character, has been proclaiming his name to them. And I find interesting is, in this is, is the idea, it, you know, he's not like, okay, I've got some special name out here, but his name is his character. That's who I am. You know, and so you think about, you know, we each have you know, a given name. But that's, you know, that may not be who we are. Now that given name ought to be a reflection of who we are. Because people get to associate who we are with that name. But with God, God says, this is who I am. This is my name. My name is I am. I am who I am. That's who I am. You know, and I am God. I am Elohim. And I am compassionate and kind and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in truth. This is who I am. Now, interesting. you look at the pairing of words here of the character of God. When, you know, when you know, Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to know you better. And God basically says, Moses, this is who I am. And in a sense, Moses should have already known this. And God's just basically telling the same thing that he should already have deducted and come to understand. In the relationship that was growing between Jehovah and Moses. But you think about the pairing of words here. The idea of being compassionate and slow to anger. If you're compassionate, one way that will be manifest is you'll be slow to anger. Or you take the idea of gracious. A God, he says, I am gracious. Well, one who is gracious will abound in what things? But one who's gracious will abound in loving kindness and truth. And so it's not so much that these are all so different concepts, but they're all concepts that just all come together in one essence, in one being, and that's our Creator. This is who our Creator is. This is who our Father in Heaven is. He has not changed at all. He's still this way. Forgiving, yes, transgressions and sins, but at the same time, punishing the guilty. Or he cannot be unjust and unholy. Who do we see emulating these characteristics? on earth who walked on earth and was this Jesus Christ Emmanuel God with us Jesus in the flesh in whom dwelt the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form was compassionate and gracious slow to anger abounding love and kindness and truth Forgiving sin 
and punishing the guilty. Jesus is no different than what God revealed to Moses. Because God does not change. His nature does not change. His character does not change. He is light. He is love. He is holy. And so, God, so Moses responds to that with great reverence and humility and petitions on behalf of the people. And it is then, you know, God that immediately begins to address the whole idea of the renewing of the covenant. You know, there's nothing really new in this renewing of the covenant. You know, you know, uh, but it is a renewing of it. It is reminding of it. But there are some things I, I kind of want to bring up. One is this idea in verse 10 when God says he's going to perform miracles. And so he's already done amazing things. You think about it. What he's already done you know, in delivering Israel out of Egypt and bringing Israel from Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai. Think of all the miracles God has already done. And God promises here in verse 10, you know, that I am going to do more. I will perform more miracles which have not been produced on the earth. You know, there's still more for, that you're going to see, that you're going to witness. And it's all for the purpose there to instill what in the people? You know. What, as a result of witnessing the miracles of God, what should have filled the hearts of the people? Huh? Faith. Faith? One thing. What else? Fear. Fear. You look there in verse, verse 11. All the people whom you live will see the working of God, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. The miracles should produce in the people a fullness of fear. And you think about the signs of Jesus. You know, and how there's a, those signs are for a purpose. John 20, 31 talks about the purpose of instilling and building and growing faith. But it's a faith that has a recognition of reverence and fear for who Jesus is. And so God again you know, says, I'm going to drive out you know, the people just as he said he is, he's going to do. And then begins to warn them as he kind of reiterates some of the laws that uh, uh, he's going to address here in this chapter. But look there in verse 12. It says, watch yourself. And then he begins enumerating all the different things. And so the whole idea is, okay, first of all, in the renewing of this covenant, he says, you need to be very careful that you observe and that you do and that you obey all that I am commanding you. And then he basically, I put it in three groups, three, three categories of things. One, he talks about covenant making. He warns about covenant making. Two, and then he talks about observing holy days or holy feasts. And three, offering acceptable sacrifices. Those are the three areas that God addresses and reiterates you know, here uh, verbally as he is rewriting the law and the covenant on those two tablets of stone which Moses cut. And so just, just note some things. You think about, okay, why was it so important that the uh, people of Israel make no covenant with the Canaanites? Why was it important that God reiterate, do not make a covenant with the people of the land? It's the same thing you referenced earlier. They are to be what he is. So it's, it's holy, they're set apart, and they're not to intermingle. And that's, you referenced earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 
which says that's how we are to be um, in the way they pictured it or should have pictured it for us. Right. And so, and so not only, okay, you need to remove the, move the idols, you don't need to worship their gods, he said, but don't even intermarry with them. Don't make covenant relations with them. And it all has to do with their spiritual well-being. It's not about ethnicity, you know, nationality. It's all about spiritual well-being and godliness and holiness and being a pure people. Yes? I would say, too, if they make a covenant, they will have to lie. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. Because if they make a covenant, there's going to be you know, problems. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Something like what we talked about last night, the polluting of, of our Yes. Mm -hmm. And so you know, th that's why he says, okay, we're going to renew this covenant, but here's some things I want to bring, bring to the forefront. One is the danger of you having a covenant relationship with anyone else but me. All right. And then two, he talks about the holy days or you know, the, the feast. And you list the three, you know, the three annual feasts, the Feast of Love, Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks that would be co coincide with Pentecost and Acts 2, and the Feast of Ingathering. Those are the three annual feasts. And he says, okay, all males are required to appear before God you know, at these three feasts. And of course, that, that significance will have, you know, have greater significance you know, when the temple is built there in Jerusalem. But, you know, all males are to do so. And, but he goes on to say, it strikes me, and when talking about the Sabbath day, which was a weekly observant there in verse 21, he says, you shall work six days, and the seventh day you shall rest. You know, and he says, even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. What's the point God's making? He comes first. Huh? He comes first. God comes first. And that's, that God comes first comes also in how, and what? With, with, with what you do with your what? Your time. So he's basically says, it is a matter if you're in crunch time. It is a matter how busy you are because of your crops. You know, like, oh no, I, I need to get the hay in. Because it's going to rain. On, uh, you know. You know. You, know? you rest. God says. This is the Sabbath. You're to keep it holy. You're to rest on it, like I said, even if it's plowing time. And anybody who has had you know, family or been farmers know, you know these times are difficult, strenuous times of trying to get things done you know, and finished before it's really messed up. And God says... You keep the day holy, even if it's plowing time and harvest time. And that's an interesting thought to think about the idea of not allowing pressing work to interfere you know, with our priorities. And then he talks about uh, you know, offerings and the firstborn and the first fruit. Yeah, Mitch. Well, I was going to say, it, uh, it ties in too with the leaving to go to the feasts as well. Yes. Uh, saying that you will go to these feasts and don't worry about someone coming and taking your land when you're gone. Right. And that, that was a striking point. You know, when he's talking about, you know, no man you know, will cover your land when you're gone. You know? And you think about, yeah, oh, I'm going to worry about this. You know, if I'm gone, is something going to happen? And God says, don't worry about it. Your focus is going to be on me. And that's a good one. I'm glad you brought that up. 
With the offerings, you've got the firstborn offspring, the firstborn sons, the first fruit of the soil, all these things in, in relationship to how they should worship God and serve Him. The one point I just want to bring out in, in this, he says, all sacrifices must be offered without leaven. We correlate that with New Testament principle. Romans 12:1 tells you and I, you and me, that we are what kind of sacrifices? We are what kind of sacrifices? Living sacrifices. We are living sacrifices. You think the principle of the Old Testament, all sacrifices must be offered to God without leaven. And we are the living sacrifices. And so therefore, when we present ourselves to God, it should be without leaven. Without sin. First Corinthians 5 talks about the erring brother and the assembly and how they needed to purge things so that they, you know, because so they would present themselves unleavened. He says, you are unleavened. You are my people. Christ is your Passover. So you need to remove the leaven. I think that's a powerful principle. Once again, the law that, you know, that points us to God and to Christ Final point, as the last bell has already been uh, rung there, it, it closes with this idea of Moses' transfiguration. And I would suggest to you, time with God changes you. Time with God should transfigure you. You know, the, the process here, Moses would go speak with God, he would come out, you know, he, he's radiating, he's shining, you know, and he then would speak to the people unveiled. So he present God's message unveiled. But then he was done speaking, he would cover his face so that they would not see the fading of that radiance. And he would take it off the next time he went in to speak to God, and there, that, that would repeat. And as you think about the idea of every time he went in to be with God, he came out radiant. And how, in a sense, by faith, should that not be the same for us? Every time we, that we are truly with God, you know, in spirit and truth, we are with God, whether privately or congregationally, we should leave transfigured. You know, we should leave with a radiance. Yeah, and because uh, that's exactly how, how Moses was changed. Just a last point, you know, one of the things that points to the whole idea of the fading of the light and the veil that we see in the New Testament talked about, it all illustrated the idea of the, the passing away of the law of Moses as well. It depicted that. The law one day would pass away. It would become obsolete. It would fade. And the new covenant would remain true and lasting. And so we're under the new covenant. We're not under a law that required a veil. We are unveiled through Christ. Thank you very much for your attention and all your help. Appreciate it.